Well, good morning. It's lovely to be with you. Thank you so much for your welcome. My name is Hamish Snedden. If I've not met you before, it's a great joy to be with you here in St. Peter's, even though we're only gathering digitally. I serve as the Assistant Minister down at St. Andrew's Free Church. I know that you've been working your way through the Sermon on the Mount with my colleague Paul Clark in the last few weeks. So it's a great joy to pick up with that reading that we've just had read to us from Matthew chapter 6, uh, verses 1 to 18. I'll explain a little bit of, of where we're heading in the next few weeks in terms of how we're going to break up this wonderfully rich chapter of God's Word. But why don't I lead us in a prayer as we begin and ask for God's help as we hear his word together. Let's pray. Our gracious God and our Heavenly Father, We thank you so much for the fact that even though we are apart physically, we remain partners in the gospel through our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that in him and through him, we are seated at your right hand in heaven with him. Thank you that you address us now as our father in your word, that Jesus addresses us as our king in his word, and that your Holy Spirit sheds light into our hearts as your word has been read and now as we consider it together. We pray, therefore, Father, Son, and Spirit, that you would be doing your work in us and among us, and that you would then do your work through us as you send us out into your world. Equip us now to love the Lord Jesus more and to live out the righteousness that he calls us to. For his sake and for your glory alone, we pray. Amen. Well, I hope that you have uh, enjoyed being in the Sermon on the Mount in the last few weeks. It's been a a good thing, I hope. Uh, It's a wonderful passage, of course, of God's Word. It's famous, um, it's challenging, and it's comforting. It's one of those portions of Scripture where you feel that double work of the Spirit going on very clearly, I think. Something that is wonderfully attractive, that we are drawn to the life of righteousness of the kingdom of God that Jesus has been laying out. But then we are also challenged as we see how far short we ourselves fall. And it's not a surprise that there would be this double work, something wonderfully attractive but also very challenging, because Jesus has been calling us as his people, just as he called the disciples then, to a life of greater righteousness. That was the phrase used back in chapter 5, verse 20, you could have a look where Jesus said, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, for us today, it might be tempting to see the Pharisees as the sort of pantomime villains. But actually, for the hearers, they were the good guys. They were the keepers and the guardians of the law, the role models of righteousness. And Jesus is saying, look, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, well, under your own steam, you cannot enter the kingdom And it's a greater righteousness because it is an internal righteousness. That's what Jesus lays out throughout the rest of chapter 5. It is a righteousness that is focused primarily on the heart before it is a matter of externals. That was apparent right through, I hope, chapter 5 as you tuned in. As Jesus laid out the greater righteousness in regard to other people, uh, anger, lust, marriage, speaking the truth, Justice, generosity, love for enemies, all of them are to do with the heart. Now, of course, they affect the behavior, but they flow from within. That's because ultimately this is a greater righteousness that is about God and not man. That's underlined in chapter 5, verse 48, where Jesus says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that is the jumping off point for the next major movement in this symphony of Jesus' teaching. 
chapter 6 will focus on practicing your righteousness, as was read to us in chapter 6, verse 1. Literally putting our righteousness to work. That righteousness that God gives us in Jesus Christ is now to be worked out in the world. An active life of service to God. And particularly here now in these 18 verses... Jesus focuses on the the secret life, that part of life that is between the believer and God himself. The heart motivations that are to drive us in what we could call piety. And here today, Jesus reaches right into the inward life of the Christian. Of you listening in, of me here even now as I speak. the, The place of the heart before God. And he reaches in to orient us, his kingdom people, in the right way of practicing our righteousness before God. My sincere hope and prayer is that in the last few weeks you have grown in your desire to please God, to serve him and others rightly. And my prayer for this morning is that this part of God's word would only intensify that desire, but that it would also give us a map for how to work that desire out with contour lines of the heart to show us how we are to go. It's a wonderful section. It's a searching section, just as the rest of God's word is. And what we'll see is that Jesus lays down one great principle in these verses, one key way in which we're going to be oriented towards God, and that will be worked out in three main areas. You maybe notice that refrain as it was read out to us. The principle is there in verse 1, and then Jesus will apply that principle of pleasing God to the three areas of giving, of praying, and of fasting. You might have noticed some of the, the repetition of words that structures this whole section. And if you read it carefully, you'll see that the bit that sticks out, that has a special place all of its own, is Jesus's focused teaching on prayer, the Lord's Prayer. That's why this morning we're not going to spend much time on the Lord's Prayer itself. We're going to be diving into that in detail next week. Uh, today we're looking at this survey of practiced righteousness, and then we will dive into the prayer later. So let's begin this morning with where Jesus himself begins this new section in chapter 6, verse 1. His great principle governing our active righteousness, which is that we are to live to please our Father in heaven and not man. Look down with me, if you would, at chapter 6, verse 1, and you'll see it. Very strong words from Jesus. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. It's a negative warning, isn't it? By that, I don't mean it's bad, but I mean that Jesus frames it in the the sense of do not do this. Beware, you who love me, you who are my disciples, you who would live out the life of the kingdom of God, be careful not to do this thing. It's clearly something that is a real danger, even for the follower of Jesus. And the danger is that the disciple would practice their righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. And that is what they are not to do. That big underlined note, you could almost imagine Jesus taking out his highlighter if we had a handout today, is repeated in verse 2 and in verse 5 and in verse 16 at the beginning of each of his three sections. Thus, when you give to the needy, verse 2, don't sound a trumpet before you like the hypocrites do. Verse 5, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Verse 16, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. All the way through, Jesus says hypocrisy 
is practicing your righteousness before other people to be seen by them. Now that might, might tweak our understanding of what hypocrisy is right as we begin. But this hypocrisy, this horizontal orientation that only looks to please people, it is hypocrisy precisely because it is a perversion, a, a fundamental twisting of what true righteousness is about. You see, righteousness, according to Jesus, is about our relationship and standing with God himself, our heart level and lived out obedience to his word, to love him and to love neighbor. That's why righteousness is practiced before his gaze first and foremost. Now, it will for certain overflow to others. I'm not saying that we just live in a silo between us and God, far from it. But to practice our righteousness primarily before men rather than God is to flip the right order and axis on its head entirely. In Matthew's gospel, hypocrite becomes Jesus' favorite word for the Pharisees themselves. You could look at chapter 23 just later on in the gospel and compare it to the Sermon on the Mount and you would see the way that the conduct internally and externally of the Pharisees is the opposite of what Jesus calls his disciples to. And literally the word hypocrite in the ancient world, in the Greek-speaking world, meant an actor, a play actor, someone who assumed a mask and played a part. So here Jesus says to us directly, as directly as I'm looking into the camera, don't be an actor. Hamish, don't be a fake. Don't be someone who walks around pretending their eyes are fixed on God in heaven when actually your true audience are the people in front of you who you were trying to impress. You see, back at the start of the sermon, Jesus said that the blessed person, the one truly favored by God and flourishes in him, is the one who is poor in spirit towards him, who is meek before him, who is humble before him, the God who is in heaven. If true righteousness, therefore, is about our standing before God, then it is obscene for God's people to practice their righteousness with God out of the picture and only our fellow creatures in the frame. That's why Jesus says beware. But it is so easy to do, isn't it? We can so quickly, I think, assume and and put on masks just like actors. We look at our world around us and we see so many people who live out their lives in the world by whatever standard of righteousness they feel is true, they live it out according to what their fellow people think of them. So whether that's their social media postings or the pronunciations their businesses make or the stances they take, so often it's driven by what the people around us think and not actually what is right. But, you know, it would be very easy for us as Christians to, to, to wag the finger and say, look, there's hypocrisy out there, and to fail to see that there can be hypocrisy in here, in our own hearts, in our own homes, in our own churches. Now, back in the 1950s, a Canadian sociologist, a man called Irving Goffman, wrote a really influential book. It was called The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life. He argued that all people, consciously and subconsciously, are are playing a part in their lives. That depending on who they're with and where they are, they put on different masks to suit the social context they find themselves in. And tragically, I think, we, we can do that too in the kingdom of God. We can care more about what people around us are thinking than what is right before our God, our Father, the God of the universe who rules 
in heaven. A few questions that I've had pressed upon myself through studying this chapter that I would throw out to you to to think on, to pray through, to maybe talk about together. Do you ever find yourself engaging in impression management, in manipulating your appearance, could be physically, but maybe most dangerously, morally or spiritually, to be presentable to the people around you? Do you ever find yourself engaging in behavior management, either doing or not doing, saying or not saying certain things because we want to draw out a certain reaction from the people around us rather than what God wants us to do? Perhaps most pervasively of all, do you ever find yourself engaging in reputation management, afraid to be honest before God and others because we're worried about what people are going to think of us? It can be a tragedy when we walk into church and Lord willing, we look forward to walking back into church physically at some point in the future. But it's so easy to put that mask on, isn't it? To say, I'm fine morally. All is well. Uh, To present a front rather than to be honest with one another. I think observationally, most normally we do it with the people whose approval matters the most to us. Could be crowds of friends, could be small circles of fellow Christians. It could just be the the one or two people whose smile you most crave. But Jesus says here, look, however big the circle you're trying to impress, however great they are in the world's eyes or in the kingdom's eyes, if our dominant reason for righteousness is man rather than God, well, then there is no reward we can expect from our Father in heaven. You see, all the way through, the the refrain of do not be like this is matched by the fact that those hypocrites in verse 2, 5, and 16, well, they have received their reward already. Because if my goal is to be seen by men, if my goal is to receive approval from my fellow creatures, then as soon as I receive that approval, that's the reward been and done with. It's the fleeting, the possible but the oh-so-fickle approval of human beings. In the great book, The Count of Monte Cristo, the main character, Edmond Dantes, says that to receive such approval is to be lifted high one moment and cast down the next. And Jesus says that for any of his followers who practice their righteousness for that reason, well, that is all you will get. Hypocrisy will never gain favor in heaven because it is not bothered with the pleasing of the Father who is in heaven. And if the negative principle is don't do it in front of others, well, there's the wonderful positive, the the great positive anchor and refrain of not only this chapter, but I would argue the whole sermon, that we have a Father in heaven whom we are to please and to serve. You see, that truth is transformative for the kingdom citizen. If you're listening to this as a man or a woman, as a boy or a girl, as an old saint or one who's newly converted to Christ, or is a a small child learning how to live for Jesus in this world, to know that we as disciples of the King are the children of God, well, that is the engine that will drive us to practice our righteousness before him. See, Jesus is speaking as the one who is God's particular son. You could look back in chapter 3, verse 17, at his baptism, where God says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased, listen to him. And the son of God now says that those who are blessed, those who are part of his kingdom, 
Well, his father is their father as well. Jesus, our king and elder brother, tells us that our righteousness is not towards a disapproving headmaster who is just waiting to slam us for transgression, rather towards a father who is eager to bless us. It's so easy, though, isn't it, to slip into thinking, even subconsciously, that God is that disapproving head in the sky. I remember vividly my Latin teacher at school. His name, his nickname was The Bat because he was a rather formidable fellow. He was famously hardcore in his approach. And this was exemplified to me by the time I once got 37 out of 40 in an unseen translation. I was very pleased with myself. I still am, frankly. This was where you were given a a hard bit of Latin which you'd never seen before and you had to translate it. The only comment at the end in the dreaded red ink was too many silly mistakes. Now, I'm sure that has made me the man I am, for better or for worse, but we can think that God is like that, that that he skates over the good and only looks for the bad. But no, Jesus says, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ now, you have a father who is in heaven and the God of all creation has set his love upon you. He is the God who sees what is done in secret. Look down with me at verse 4. Your father who sees in secret will do what? He will reward you. Verse 6, your father who, is, who sees in secret will reward you. Again, verse 18, your father who sees in secret will reward you. Do you think Jesus wants us now to, to know that and to believe that? Of course he does. Because here is the mainspring of practiced righteousness. That God loves us and stands to reward We'll see in verses 19 to 20 that it is God who keeps and adds to our treasure in heaven. And so he is to be the inward object of all Christian living. Just think then with me how that reorients our righteousness, how how Jesus here steers the, the course of our life and our heart towards God. If you're someone who struggles with that reputation management and the others that we spoke of earlier, then here is a wonderful, liberating key. You see, objectively, God is God in heaven. He rules. He is there now. He is the source and goal of the human life of righteousness. And that majestic and holy God has, again, objectively set his adopting love upon you. That means in reality that the people across from you are the people with you now if you're listening to this or the people in your mind's eye if you're listening on your own, that their opinion of you is only ever secondary. It is never the main thing in life because they themselves, wonderful though they may be, are not the main thing in life. God is God. God loves you and it is God who will reward you subjectively, so not just that which is true intellectually, but but also that which is lived out in our experience, to know and believe that this God sees and rewards, well, is also enormously liberating. You know, it's so easy to go through life consumed by the fear of others. What do they think of me? Will they take my actions rightly? And we torment ourselves with the what if, the what if, the what if. You know, what is going to happen with all these people with whom I share my life? 
But Jesus says, look, the the eternal God sees, the loving Father knows, the generous Father God will reward you for every deed done for him, whatever anyone else thinks. You know, that frees us up to live righteously, even in ways that the world around us will find totally baffling. If your colleagues or even your family are left bemused or even bruised and offended by your discipleship, your following of Jesus. Well, the Father's approval is all that counts. It's not just in the world's gaze. that This attitude and knowledge frees us up to live righteously in ways that even our fellow Christians can sometimes find baffling. You know, we'll disagree with one another in areas of wisdom and of, of conscience, different finer points of theology. But Jesus says, look, it's the Father's approval that counts. Take it that is good news for hearts that want to practice righteousness, but so often are bowed down. And as we just finish this great principle, I want to suggest a a way of of viewing it as we look at our whole Christian lives. As I've meditated on these verses, I've increasingly seen them and and experienced them as something of a a spiritual triage. You'll know A&E is in the news a lot at the moment as we're thankful for the work the NHS have done and continue to do. You'll know that if you go to A&E, a nurse will assess you first and and do triage upon you to see how severe uh, the problem is and, and how quickly you will get in to see a doctor. Here it's not a nurse, but Jesus opening us up and assessing and exposing my and our motivations. And there is a warning and a comfort here that there is a warning. Beware. Don't be like this. It's stark, it's uncompromising, and it's searching. Clearly it's a danger for all, even those 12 gathered around Jesus then. How much more so for us today? Be on your guard, Jesus says. Be alert. Don't be complacent, don't be passive, don't be lulled to sleep about the danger. You know, pleasing man is so often just the air we breathe that we can get inoculated to it. We can forget who we truly are. Here's a question then to ponder, uh, to see where you might be at in this. In my Christian walk, do I find myself wondering if only this person, person X, could see me now? You know, if if our answer is, yeah, I really want someone to see me, then maybe we're in more danger that our horizons need to change. But there is a comfort here too, because God is our Father who sees and who rewards. Do you ever resent your invisible practice of righteousness? Do you ever wonder if, if only someone could see how much I love God now, I might get more kudos, I might receive more praise, I might receive more reward? Well, know that the only one who counts does see. He sees what is done in secret. The only one who truly loves does know. In our prayer, in our giving, in our personal devotion, he loves you and he will reward you. We can get on and and practice our righteousness before our Father in heaven and not those around us. And that's the great principle laid down. And, and really, it's that principle that Jesus now pushes through three main areas of piety. We, we sometimes can be nervous of the language of piety. It might have gone out of fashion with some listening, that, that we can worry about pietism, an approach to the Christian life that's just too focused on, on me and my God. Yet Jesus here is happy to speak of three areas of piety, three core ways 
in which this father-oriented righteousness is going to work itself out as we live as children of God. Notice with me that that Jesus assumes that his disciples will be doing these things. Verse 5, when you pray. Verse 2, when you give. Verse 16, when you fast. Now, Now, this isn't an exhaustive list of practice righteousness, but it is simply, it is seemingly a nothing less than list. Here is what Jesus assumes is going to be part of the life of his followers. First up, giving to the needy. In Jesus' mind, this most likely would be the practice of giving to the poor in Israel and also to those visiting Israel as sojourners from other lands. Think of Ruth, the Moabite woman who comes to Bethlehem and goes gleaning in the fields. And Jesus focuses on this internal motivation, as we've been saying, less the the to what of giving, but rather the how. And Jesus says, verse 2, when, the, uh, when you give, don't make a great song and dance about it. In verse 2, he has this very powerful image of, of trumpets being blown before you. And whether that was a, a literal practice of some hypocrites of the day, whether it's more of a metaphor like us speaking about blowing our own horn is unclear. Either way, the, the point is obvious, isn't it? Don't be like them. Don't draw attention to yourself with this great procession in front of you showing how virtuous you are. Rather, give simply because you want to bless others as an expression of your love for your Father in heaven. Uh, We can see it around us today. Someone will give a a large chunk of money to a charity. And in, in a way that's never gaudy, but is very clear, it's made clear who has done the giving and just how much they have given. It's something that, that we see in our culture almost every day, what some might call a, a humble brag, showing off while maintaining a, an outward form of humility. I want to say that's still a good deed, uh, that if the poor are blessed by that, that is a good thing. But for the giver like that, well, they've received their reward already. They've got the warm glow of approval from their fellow man, but that will fade away as fast as the note of the trumpet itself. No, the opposite, Jesus says, is to give in secret. Do not let, verse 3, your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Another another vivid image that I think is not to be pressed overly literally, that the hands not knowing each other is an image of one part of the body doing something so as not to receive reward from another part of the body. Likewise, secret refers to motive rather than doing something in total anonymity. If you were to give money to a charity or to give to the church and someone else were to find out, that would not in any way nullify what you'd done. What matters is your inward secret motivation. So when we give, whatever it is that we're giving to, supremely to the the kingdom work of God's heavenly kingdom, when we do that, as a basic part of Christian living, we're to do it with God's priorities in mind. It's exactly the same then when we come to praying in verse 5. Do you see how strong the imperative is here? In every single one of these, as Jesus says, you must not be like the hypocrites. The the citizen of the kingdom, the child of God, must not have man-pleasing at the center of their practiced righteousness. Well, Well, why then does that apply to prayer? Well, it's to speak to our Father in heaven. Because he is the one who is in heaven and he sees from heaven what is done in secret and he will reward us, well, therefore we speak to him. Now, we'll dive into that next week as we zoom in on prayer in the Lord's Prayer. 
For now, I just want to consider the warning of Jesus as it applies to prayer. It is easy in prayer, surprisingly easy, shamefully easy, speaking for myself, especially in corporate prayer, to find that the gaze of our hearts moving out of the corner of our eyes to those around us. Uh, Prayer meetings can function as an example of that. You know, it's a brilliant thing to come to a prayer meeting. Uh, Please do. It's a brilliant thing to pray together with others. But we must ask God that we wouldn't pray in order to impress anyone. Rather, we should love to pray together simply because we are gathering as God's family to speak to him as our father. So whether we pray out loud or silently, we pray to God the Father. If you do stay silent and pray, as it were, through the heart and lips of others, be silent not because you're worried about what others might think of your prayer, but because that is the most authentic expression of your devotion to God. Again, hopefully we can just see here even something of the liberation of knowing God as Father. However it is that we're praying, in private or corporately, we're doing it just to God. Finally, fasting, as Jesus moves to it in verse 16. Now, this is the one that perhaps is most alien to us today. Uh, Certainly speaking for my own generation, it's something that we maybe haven't thought about as much as we should do. Uh, Jesus says, when you fast, assuming that for the believer whose expectations are set by the Old Testament, fasting would be a normal part of their expression of devotion to God. Uh, John Wesley in the 18th century said that some have exalted religious fasting beyond all scripture and reason, but others have utterly disregarded it. I think that's only more true today. Uh, Some traditions make fasting an external action that through causing ourselves hardship must bring us closer to God. That would be to, to radically misunderstand the nature of God as Father that we've already been exploring. Others though, and certainly I speak for myself here, I think before really the last few months of studying this, have gone the other way such that fasting has little to no practical place in our lives. You could chase through the verses in the Old Testament for this, but broadly speaking, fasting expressed mourning, sorrow over sin that led to repentance, and was sometimes used at times of specific prayer. So you could check out 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 12, or Esther chapter 4, verse 16, as examples of, of these things. And I've been personally challenged thinking on fasting to see how closely it aligns with Jesus's priorities in the Sermon on the Mount, not just as a lecture on historical piety, but as an option today for believers. Jesus later in Matthew 10 explains why his disciples aren't fasting, and this is the only one of these three areas that is not picked up in the rest of the New Testament. So this is something that Christians can can legitimately talk about as to whether it should be part of our lives today or can be part of our lives today. But I take it that if we are to be those who mourn over our own spiritual neediness, if we're to be broken-hearted about our sin, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, if we are to be people of prayer, with prayer at the very centre of the Christian life, well then why wouldn't we fast? Something that tangibly reminds us of our finitude, of our need to depend on God, something that removes the, the various props we put into our own life to bolster our own independence. I take it when done with God firmly in mind as the centre, 
Fasting can be a wonderful tool to aid us in these inward postures of the heart of humble dependence upon God. Notice not drawing attention to oneself, not constantly looking at your watch or, or bowing your head every time someone else eats, not passing off every background noise as a rumbling tummy. No, in this way too, we are to do it in secret, honoring God and setting ourselves apart for the service of him. So if the first principle led to something of a, a triage of our motives, these three areas as we close, I think gives us a triage of our piety. And there is a wonderful reassurance as we look at this. The, the challenge, the question is, how does our practiced righteousness reflect Jesus' own priorities? And you notice that, that when they do, there is a wonderful promise attached. At the end of each one of these sections, Jesus says, your father who sees in secret will reward you. He says that when we are radically oriented towards our father in heaven, when we live out our righteousness for him and not for the people around us, God sees it and God knows it. You see, the father sees everything done in secret by his children. And in heaven, where it cannot perish, spoil or fade, God keeps and stores a reward for us, which he will one day give as his son returns. Very practically then for us, as we finish, as we go from listening to God's word, as we go back out into our lives and our, our day-to-day existence, every time we put God first, every time we live for his kingdom with his glory in mind, every day that we are conformed more to him than to those around us, well, God sees it and will reward it. That is a wonderful reassurance as we live for him. So let's pray and ask for God's help to live this way. Our gracious God, we praise you that you are our father in heaven. Thank you that you see what is done in secret and will reward us. And we pray, Father, that therefore in every area of our Christian life, in our giving, in our praying, in our personal devotion to you, whether in fasting or, or in any other area, help us by your spirit to live only for you and not for those around us. Forgive us for when the gaze of our heart does drop onto our fellow man and we take our eyes off you. Fix us again on your glory and goodness, we pray, and animate our every thought and word and deed with a desire to please you. And we ask that you would do it for Jesus' sake. Amen.